I'm going to have a neck ache after this here lecture hall. Kind of, kind of way up there. It's a different perspective. Uh, I wonder how I look. Hmm. I'm not sure it's a flattering angle, but you all look great. Open your Bibles to Genesis 20. Genesis 20. We continue on our journey through the life of Abraham, specifically looking at the faith of Abraham in the Genesis story, which is a story of beginnings, uh, the beginning of the world, the beginning of God's work, um, redeeming his creation, the beginning of his covenant people in Abraham, the beginning of that patriarchal age, uh, the beginning of their journey uh, even into into Egypt. All these beginnings are what the book of Genesis is about. And I hope that it's been helpful to you to think about faith. That's what we have in common with Abraham, the father of the faithful. And what we have in Genesis 20 is a story that's familiar to you if you've been with us for a few weeks. It's also familiar to you if you've read the book of Genesis because it's, it's sort of a rerun. You ever watch a rerun? Uh, maybe a favorite show you've watched again and again, if you're a Doctor Who fan or if you're into the Gilmore Girls because you came in a time machine from the 90s or or whatever, if there's a show that you've repeatedly watched, you understand the nature of a rerun. Well, many biblical scholars thought for some time that this was just a rerun of chapter 12. Abraham pulls the, my wife is my sister lie. And he already did that in Egypt, but this isn't uh, merely a rerun. This is the same sin rehearsed in a new environment. 20 years have passed, but Abraham still falters. He still struggles with unbelief. He still fails to hang on to the promise. I don't know if that sounds unbelievable to you, but if you've ever believed God and simultaneously struggled with the same sin more than one time, then I think this text might have some help for you. I think it might be very believable after all. Genesis chapter 20, I'll read to you 1 through 18. Now Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. Then he journeyed in Gerar. Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, behold, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you've taken, for she is married. Now Abimelech had not come near her. And he said, Lord, will you slay a nation even though it's blameless? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart, you have done this. And I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told all these things in their hearing, and the men were greatly frightened. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What have you encountered? 
that you have done this thing. Abraham said, because I thought, surely there is no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is the kindness which you will show me. Where everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. Abimelech then took sheep and oxen and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham and restored his wife Sarah to him. Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you please. To Sarah he said, Behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, it is your vindication before all who are with you and before all men you are cleared. Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maids so that they had bo- so they bore children for Yahweh had closed fast completely all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah Abraham's wife this is the very word of the living God what a story It's familiar to us because we've seen it before. It's familiar to you if you've read Genesis because chapter 12, Abraham does the exact same lie. Uh, The difference was he was in Egypt and it was on account of his fear of the Pharaoh taking his wife because of her great beauty. 20 years have gone by. I don't know if she's less beautiful. This chapter doesn't say anything like that. But for whatever reason, Abraham felt the need to lie again. It would also be familiar to you if you kept reading in the book of Genesis, because in chapter 26, Abraham's son Jacob pulls the same shenanigans. He tries to convince uh, the whole sister-wife dilemma. In Abraham's case, he had kind of a partial truth going on in the way he told the story. He explains that in uh, verse 12 and 13. But what I really want to focus in on, and I think what the text is wanting us to notice in this interesting story, is not only just what's featured here, and we'll look at that, but please notice what happened in chapter 19. Chapter 19 was uh, that famous story of Sodom and Gomorrah. It was the prayers, the intercession, the prophetic ministry of Abraham that saved Lot and his family. Lot was not participating in a a wise course of action by moving his family close to Sodom. And we saw how much Sodom had worn off on the family. He's lost his wife through the, the judgment and his daughters were more like Sodom than he ever would have imagined once he's a recluse in the mountains. I mean, it was a really depressing story of God's judgment, but it was supposed to feature the amazing faith of Abraham. This was a man with such a friendship with God that he could negotiate with God for the release of his uh, kinsfolk. He would deal with God in that way, praying to God, asking for God to be merciful to this city if there was a certain amount of righteous people there, right? Not only that, what we've seen so far is Abraham living according to this promise, his magnanimous moment where he stands before all the land with Lot and says, take whichever piece of land you want. I mean, this very generous moment in Abraham. You see Abraham at the very beginning of the story, leaving his homeland, walking away 
uh, from all that he knew that was familiar to him, his gods, his people, to follow after uh, the God who called him, the covenant God. So we've seen great success and victory in Abraham's life. And even up to chapter 19, uh, we saw Abraham doing great as an intercessor for Lot. And we're about to see God finally fulfill that promise, that promise he made all the way back in chapter 12, that he's repeatedly reaffirmed to Abraham in his victories and battles and, and even in his struggles. Isaac will be born. Sarah will finally be pregnant. And at 99 years old, this promise that was laughable at one point in this story finally comes true and Isaac is born. So why is this story here? It's such a bummer. It's such a letdown. I mean, we've been seeing Abraham's faith only on the increase since chapter 12 when he pooched it badly with the sister wife lie. But now we're back. We're back to Abraham messing up. Abraham telling a lie. Abraham acting not out of faith, but out of fear. And I think what's happening in chapter 20 is it's a bit of a parenthesis in this story, a story of Abraham's increasing faith and faithfulness to God, but it's a very human story, a very real story. And like your story of faith, what you see in this Abraham story is that every true servant of God, everyone who believes God, everyone who has faith will in this fallen world have moments of unbelief. They will succumb to sin and temptation. And how you think about that is going to help you in your battle against sin and in your desire to continue to be faithful. What this text tells us about sin, about the believer, and about God is what's on display in chapter 20. I'd like to break it down into into four parts as we walk through it and just note a few things that'll teach you how you ought to think about, especially about stubborn sins, sins that return to you, sins that perhaps you thought you were done with in your immaturity, in your high school years, that seem to be nagging and persistent. Because Abraham has a sin like that, and we see it in the way he keeps deceiving his enemies about the nature of his relationship with his wife. He puts his wife in grave danger in these situations. And he puts the promise of God seemingly in great danger as well. She is supposed to be pregnant by Abraham's means. She is supposed to have the promised child. And when she's locked up in a harem with Abimelech, and when she's in the the Pharaoh's household as one of his women, the promise looks like it's in a really dire spot. But what can we learn about stubborn sins? Stubborn sins is the title of this sermon. Stubborn sins. Uh, Abraham has one at least, and perhaps you have a few. What can this chapter teach us about how to deal with those and how to think about those? Well, first off, in verses 1 and 2, and we'll dip into the story a little further, I'd like you to note how God evaluates sin. Note how God evaluates sin. Verse 1 says that Abraham was on his way down south, settles in this spot, and Abraham says of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. If you don't believe me, you can look at chapter 12 
and see this is the exact same lie that Abram told when he journeyed to Egypt. And when he told this lie, it was right after Abram received the promise of God. It was right after Abram, verse 7 of chapter 12, built an altar to Yahweh who appeared to him. I mean, immediately following that, there was a famine in the land. He goes down to Egypt and he does this whole story. Verse 11, see now, I know you're a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they'll say, this is his wife and they'll kill me and they'll let you live. Please say that you are my sister so that it may go well with me because of you, that I may live on account of you. This was the original bargain that Abraham alludes to in verse 12 or in verse 13. We decided to do this together. It was a conspiracy that Abraham made in order to protect himself. The reason this is so foolish, the reason this is a stupid sin, and all sin is stupid, but this is particularly stupid and easy to identify at this point and from this perspective, is because it comes on the heels of God's promise. That's the first thing to note about how God evaluates sin is sin always needs to be looked at in light of God's promise. You see, sin in its normal manifestation is some sort of twist some sort of turn, some sort of mutation of something that is right and good. Abraham's desire here is to dodge a sword from Abimelech. It's to get through this area of Negev without losing his head. That was the same idea in Egypt. The motive isn't necessarily the problem here. Abraham's just trying to preserve his neck. He does so in a way that dishonors the promise of God. There's a way that Abraham could have gone about this by trusting God, by believing God's promise. You see, Abraham could have heard God say back in chapter 12, those who curse you, I will curse. And those who bless you, I will bless. That's the promise that God made to Abraham. And instead of applying that promise to this situation, Abraham instead thinks he has a better way. He thinks that his treachery, his deceit, this lie might be what God would use to preserve his servant. But God has already given Abraham the means of preservation, which is Yahweh's promise of blessing. Because God has told Abraham that he will protect him, Abraham didn't need to worry about his neck. He didn't have to worry about his pretty wife or his 20 years older pretty wife. He needed to just trust the Lord in this situation. He didn't have to lie. He didn't have to deceive. He didn't have to get himself in this mess. But God evaluates sin in light of the promise, in light of what he offers. Whenever you choose sin, you're choosing something less than God's best. You're choosing something less than God's promise. This is true of of an ordinary sin that is commonly practiced by college students that of sexual immorality. You see, God doesn't have a problem with sex. He has invented it for human pleasure and for procreation. But the idea behind sex is that it exists in a context, in the context of a covenant relationship between a man and a woman spelled out for us in the first chapters of Genesis. Built into creation, sex is something good and holy. The marriage bed, as the New Testament says, is undefiled. So how can the same act be good in one context and bad in another context? 
Well, that's the subtle difference between righteousness and sin. You see, one context offers the protection and provision of God. In fact, it offers the blessing of God. And the other misfires. It seems like it's something in common, but it's not. And that's true of so many other sins, whether it's lying, like in the case of Abraham, what had Abraham ought to have done? He ought to have trusted God and spoke the truth. By speaking the truth, he would have seen how mighty God could keep all his promises. I'd like you to skip forward a little bit to verse 7 to note one more thing about how God evaluates sin. How does God think about sin? You know, it's less than his perfect standard, but please also see this in verse 7. In the dream, this vision that God gives to Abimelech, this pagan king, now therefore restore the man's wife, for he's a prophet. That's a, that's a tough one. God calls him a prophet, even though he just did something obviously sinful, even to the morals of Abimelech, but we'll come to that later. He will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not restore her, if you don't give the wife back to Abraham, know that you will surely die, you and all who are yours. Did you catch that? I mean, he has these massive consequences. Why such massive consequences over Uh, what seemed to be an accidental offense on Abimelech's part, that's what he says, why such high consequences? Why would he be destroyed and all who are his would face destruction? Well, this tells us something else about how God sees sin. One of the reasons God takes sin so seriously isn't just that it's a twist of God's word, of God's promise. It's also that God takes sin very seriously personally. Look at the end of verse 6. Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you've done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. What? The Bible is so interesting. The way that God presents himself to us in the scriptures is mind-blowing at times, isn't it? Did you catch that language? Also, I kept you from sinning against me. See, no hanky-panky happened with Abimelech and Sarah. Something something went wrong at the harem that night. He picked somebody else, or he fell asleep, or whatever it was. But Sarah, for however long she was in Abimelech's possession, was not touched by Abimelech. He said that that was true, and God confirmed that. He sees everything. But there was something in God's involvement that protected this woman from a very dangerous and susceptible situation. And that's a little glimpse of the sovereignty of God. But I want you to see what's so significant about how God evaluates our sin in that verse. Look what he says. Yes, God did something. We don't know exactly what it was, but he prevented Abimelech from touching Sarah. Notice that he says, I kept you from sinning against me. In the ancient Near Eastern world, adultery was a sin. Even in pagan cultures, they thought of it as a violation, uh, really of property rights is how they talked about it in Babylon and in other ancient Near Eastern sources. Uh, A wife was considered property in the pagan world, and because someone took the wife, that was a violation of that man's rights. That's how they talked about it 
way back in the day. Now, adultery was seen as a serious offense, and it was one that was committed not against the wife in the ancient world. It was one that was committed against the husband. His property rights had been violated. His goods had been damaged. Now you understand, I'm not agreeing with this perspective. I'm telling you how it, was, how it worked in the ancient Near East. Now, please understand, this tells us, one, about the reality of this moral situation being somewhat universal, that adultery is always seen as a violation of trust. But what we're seeing here isn't that this was identified as a sin against Abraham. That Abimelech ultimately wasn't just sinning against Abraham. That would have been the cultural definition. But God in this vision tells him that I prevented you, Abimelech, from sinning against me. Me. God evaluates your sin not only in how it damages you, how it affects you, how it ruins your human relationships on a horizontal level, but God thinks about your sin as it affects him. And I wonder if you think about your sin that way. Do you primarily think about the way your sin impacts you? You feel guilty, dirty, unclean, uh, unworthy. Do you feel bad about the person that you sinned against? Or do you think about your sin vertically? Do you think about how your sin affects God, the one who made you in his likeness and image, the one who sent his son to die on the cross for the forgiveness of sins? Do you think about how it affects your witness as his representative? Is that how you think about your sin? Because that's a very godly perspective about sin. To God, our sin is evaluated not just as a violation of his perfect standard, but as a personal offense to God himself. You'll find this all over the Bible in the story of Joseph. As Joseph is a servant in Uh, the house of Potiphar, and Potiphar's wife tries to get with him and grab him, and he leaves his North Face jacket behind and uh, runs out in the streets. Do you remember what he says as he escapes her clutches? How could I, when she says, lay with me, Joseph. I don't know if she had that voice, but that would (laughs) be further motivation to run. Uh, (laughs) Lay with me, Joseph. Uh, Why did he leave his coat behind? He tells us. It wasn't because she had a scary voice. It was because, how could I sin against God? How could I sin against God? Remember what David said after his great adulterous affair with Bathsheba in his song of repentance in Psalm 51. He said, against you and you alone have I sinned. It doesn't mean that the humage damage of sin is nil. It means that the human damage of sin is nil compared to the divine offense. This chapter teaches us, especially when we think about stubborn sins, how God evaluates our sins. And I think one of the ways that we can fight stubborn sin is by thinking about sin the way God thinks about it, rather than calling it a peccadillo, just a little sin, not a big deal I'm just a fallen creature. What, what do you expect of me? Not thinking it in, well, it doesn't really hurt very many other people. It's just me. It's just my thought life. Rather than rationalizing and making excuses, 
adopt God's perspective on your sin. Against you and you alone have I sinned. Or in the words of God in Abimelech's dream, I kept you from sinning against me. Sinning against me. Hebrews 13.4 says the marriage bed is undefiled, or it's talking about adultery. I I don't have that verse memorized. Hebrews 13.4. I I was going to say it to you, and then my brain said file deleted. It says marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. I was right. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. I mean, that verse has in it an insistence that fornication, that adultery, that a violation of the honor of marriage is something that belongs in God's court, not ultimately in a human court. The problem with breaking a marriage covenant is that you've offended a holy God, the one who authored and instituted the ordinance of marriage. Okay, so note how God evaluates sin. That's the first thing to note about stubborn sin. Second, verses three through seven, note how God intervenes for his servant. Note how God intervenes, or you could say stands by his servant. I like intervenes. Verse 3, But God came to Abimelech in a dream in the night and said to him, Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you've taken, for she is married. How much better is God at protecting Abraham than Abraham? I mean, could you trust him? Could you trust God? I mean, Abraham's got his wife in a sticky position. She's in the harem of a pagan king. She's locked up for we don't know how long. Long enough that the harem has, uh, the wombs of the harem have dried up, if I could say it like that. Uh, That's what verse 18 says, is that there was some way for them to observe that God's judgment had happened long enough that Abimelech noticed, how come nobody's getting pregnant anymore? I mean, if he had a harem, he would have seen that happen quite regularly. But now it wasn't happening at all. So however long Abraham put his wife in danger through his stupid, foolish sin, God was good at rescuing her. How much better is God at intervening for his servants than for his servants to intervene for themselves, especially using sinful means? You realize that God is going to overcome Abraham's sinful resistance, his unbelief, his fear, which is driving and motivating in him, what should Abraham have believed? Well, he should have believed the promise. He should have believed God will bless those who bless me. God will curse those who curse me. And that would have done Abraham a whole lot of good. But what about you? Do you have the same kind of promise? Do you have an invincibility promise from Yahweh that whoever shoves you will be shoved. Whoever belittles you will be belittled. Whoever blesses you will be blessed. If you did, I think you'd take your exams on campus a little less stress, right? Midterms. I have the the blessing of Yahweh on me. (laughs) Bam, done. It doesn't work like that, does it? It doesn't work like that in your life. You don't have invincibility promises. You don't have a promise that Christians will never be harmed. There's Boko Haram, and they slay hundreds of Christians in Africa every single month. Christians are persecuted and martyred. Christians are treated unfairly. 
What do we make of the promise of God? Will God still intervene for his servants? Well, I would say no and yes. No in that we are not God's covenant person. In other words, we don't operate in the same sphere of redemptive history as Abraham. He was God's chosen man to father a physical nation that God would use to bless all nations. But please understand that we don't occupy such a central figure in redemption individually, corporately we certainly do. We are the children of Abraham's faith. And God has given great and glorious promises to the church. He has told us that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. And he's made us individual promises as well that we can hold on to. In 1 Corinthians 10, there is no temptation that has overtaken you except that which is common to man. But God is faithful and with every temptation will provide a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Believer, the problem isn't that you don't have powerful enough promises like Abraham. It's that you're not appropriating the promises that you have. To know that Jesus is for you that he loves you, that he's forgiven you, and he's promised to bless you in the heavenlies with every spiritual blessing. If you were to appropriate, what a word that is. If you were to apply, if you were to take that promise and pin it on your coat, put it in your pocket, keep it safe, treasure it in your heart and rub it in, you would have far more promises than even our mighty father Abraham. Because every new covenant promise is yours in Christ. And God will intervene for his servant. He will rescue you. He will provide for you what you need, just like he did for Abraham. Uh, A third thing to note here is in verses 8 through 13, notice how the My handwriting's really bad. Notice how the confrontation uh, favors faith. Notice how the confrontation favors faith. Uh, I love this part. Uh, So Abimelech arose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them these things in their hearing. The men were greatly frightened. I mean, he's been face to face with the judgment of God. What's he supposed to do? He believes that he's in trouble. And so he calls Abraham and says, what? What? Why? Why and what? I didn't sleep at all last night, man. Why are you doing? What? He does. He asks like three or four different questions there, right? And it's from different angles. What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you? And you brought this on me and my kingdom, such a great sin. And you've done things to me that ought not to have been done. And guess what? He's not done. Verse 10, more questions. What have you encountered that you've done this thing? Like, I thought the Negev was a decent place to hang out. You were passing through the Negev. What, what did you, something bad happened to you in the Negev, and now you're all mad at the Negev, and you're trying to get God after me? Negev. And so he has all these questions in this confrontation, and, and Abraham then begins to try to give a slippery answer, and it exposes what's really going on with Abraham. He has like a technicality here, and uh, if you're interested in this part, this will be fast, but uh, marrying your sister is a bad idea, uh, just for the record. It's a bad idea to marry your half-sister too, for not only genetic reasons, but biblical reasons. And in this story, uh, that law has not come yet, and so this precedes that. 
Also, that marriage happened way back in Ur. Apparently, it wasn't a problem in Ur, and it wasn't part of God's law yet. So put that wherever you want it, file that in side notes. So, but, but getting to Abraham's point here, he, he's being slippery. He finally says, I thought that you'd kill me. Apparently, the manifestation of unbelief, in other words, the reason Abraham lies is the same in chapter 12 as it is in chapter 20. He didn't want Pharaoh to kill him and therefore rub out the promise. He doesn't want Abimelech to kill him in this pagan land. And so he resorts to acting like a pagan. It's always good to notice how these confrontations show what our faith is made of. And where Abraham's faith is falling short, where it's uh, stuttering here, where it is is falling and failing and where unbelief is manifesting itself has to do with the motive of Abraham's heart. Instead of a posture of trust, he has a posture of fear, of fear. You see, fear is what's underneath this unbelief. Fear was what motivated his policy that he made up in chapter 12 with Sarah, the scheme, the plan, like whenever we get to a place, because you're, you're so smoking hot, you say you're my sister, so they don't steal you. And that's our plan. That's a paraphrase, the message version. So that's the plan. It's the modus operandi. It's the policy. It's the scheme. It's how they, they decided to do it. And even when they saw what trouble that got them in, in chapter 12, they still do it again. This is the stubbornness of sin. This is the rehearsal of of those things which we should not be in. And if this seems unbelievable to you, will you please access the file in your mind that says the last time you sinned in the same way that you've sinned before? Uh, Do you have that file? I certainly do. Have you lost your temper in the same way? Have you lusted in the same manner? Have you been dishonest more than one time? Because if you have, you understand exactly what Abraham is going for. One of the beginnings of the book of Genesis is the origin story of sin. Like any good superhero story, sin has a beginning. It has a dark, powerful, ever-vigilant enemy. And sin, Genesis 3.13, deceives. Sin, Genesis 4.7, desires. Sin, Genesis 6.7, destroys And even forgiven sin in the New Testament is portrayed as active in waging war, Romans 7.23, of lusting and desiring evil, Galatians 5.17, of enticing us, James 1.14, of entangling us, Hebrews 12.1, nagging, entrenched, persistent, and stubborn sins can be something that's a reality in Christians' lives. That's how the New Testament presents it, and it's how so many heroes of the faith went down more than once. John Owen, in his landmark book about sin called The Sinfulness of Sin, describes it quite strongly. Listen, bring thy lust to the gospel, not for relief, but for further conviction of its guilt. Look on him who thou hast pierced and be in bitterness. Say to thy soul, what have I done? What love, what mercy, what blood, what grace have I despised and trampled on? 
Have I obtained a view of God's fatherly countenance that I might behold his face and provoke him to his face? You see, if you want to be about killing stubborn sins, then you have to get to the point where you can properly hate that sin, properly grieve that sin. And Abraham is still not at that point, which is why he gets exposed again. It's why he falls into this hole again. That doesn't mean that you're not a true believer any more than Abraham isn't a true believer. But sin thrives in an environment where we don't see how God uses his promises to overcome our unfaithfulness. Think about it this way. Again, here's Owen, John Owen, in the same work. Set faith at work on Christ for the killing of thy sin. His blood is the great sovereign remedy for sin-sick souls. Live in this, and thou wilt die a conqueror. Yea, thou wilt, though the good providence of God live, to see thy lust dead at thy feet. You see, there is hope. And part of that hope is that God, in this confrontation, gives Abraham such amazing favor. In this slippery explanation of Abraham's sinful repetitive and redundant sinful scheme, plan, mode that he keeps going back into, God still provides a way out. It's another reminder that our salvation, our deliverance, our redemption was never, ever based on our performance. You get that, right? Like the gospel isn't because you cleaned up your act. The gospel is the hope we have in Christ because you can't clean up your act. I mean, the only kind of people God saves are sinful people, bad people, dirty people, people who have offended God, not people who are religious and sweet, people who've cleaned up their act enough to be considered worthy. You understand God has never thought of you as worthy because of anything you have done. God has thought of your worthiness in his presence only on the basis of what Christ has done. You get that? If you get that, you get the gospel. If you don't get that, you get manufactured religion, which is not going to save you, but damn you in hell forever. That's the difference between a religion of works and a religion of grace. And that's the last thing I want to note about stubborn sins, verses 14 through 17. Notice how grace overcomes sin. How grace overcomes sin. Verse 17, Abraham now functioning back in intercessor role. Remember, he was intercessor in chapter 19. He was deceiver in chapter 20. And now he's back to intercessor, the one who prays on another's behalf. He's in his prophetic role again. Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maids so that they bore children. The baby factory in the Negev harem is back in full operation, and whatever the motivation was, probably Abimelech wanted a political alliance with Abraham. That's why he stole the wife. Whatever it was, everything has been set right. And the text explains to us in verse 18, for the Lord has closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. God's grace prevails even in our sin. 
And the logic of the New Testament isn't, okay, so I should sin more, huh? May it never be. The logic of the New Testament is where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And that's always where those who believe God and trust His promises will go back to. They'll all go back to not our vigilance against stubborn sins, though we will fight and we will bring the gospel to those sins and we'll try to see them the way God sees them and we'll pray for progress and maturity and by God's grace, He will grow us. But ultimately, we know that the only hope we have is that it's grace, not just in our salvation, but grace in our ultimate and final glorification. That there's grace upon grace. And that's what happens in this story. Because in the very next verse, it says Yahweh took note of Sarah as He had said, and Yahweh did for Sarah as He had promised. Well, that certainly wasn't on the basis of what happened in chapter 20. But guess what? Nothing in your life that's a blessing from God is coming at you because you are such a worthy servant. You're not. That's not the way you should view yourself. I think a lot about the parable of the soils. Do you think about that one very often? Recorded for us three times in the Gospels, the account in in Luke, I believe it's chapter 8, is one I draw your attention to. It is Luke 8. And you know the story. It's a parable about soil and about faith, about how sometimes something seems to be genuine faith, but then it blisters or gets choked out by weeds, the concerns of the world. You know the parable, the parable of the soil. The very end of that parable in verse 15 about the good soil, that's the true believer. It's not that there's no thorns. It's not that there's no birds. It's not that there's no dangers. It's that the soil was right. It was sent by God to a heart that was prepared to receive it, and it will bear fruit. As he says in the parable, a hundred times as great, or over and over again. But look at what context true faith thrives. Verse 15, but the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast, and bear fruit with perseverance. You see, the only way you're going to overcome stubborn sins is not to deny their existence, but to know that even in the good soil, perseverance is required. Holding fast is required. That if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in His perfect life and in His righteous death in your place, if He is your substitute for your sins that makes you right with God, then it involves you believing, persevering, holding on, and fighting your sin with all of your might. And that's what this fruit of perseverance is all about. Listen one more time to the words of John Owen. Set faith at work on Christ for the killing of sin. His blood is the great sovereign remedy for sin-sick souls. Live in this and you will die a conqueror. Yes, you will, through the good providence of God, live to see your stubborn lust dead 
at your feet. And when you do, it will only be by the grace of God.